Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses warped your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Welcome back, Prom Party. So what's funny is I also thought about doing like an old timey music intro, but the only thing I could think of was changing Funky Town to Pleasantville, and that's not the right decade at all. <laughs> You're so far off the deck. Oh my god! I was like sitting there, and I was like, "Won't you take me to Pleasantville?" That's not right. That's remember, not even close. Remember that time we had a mailman come up to our door the other day and he was like quietly humming Mr. Sandman? Yeah, and it was very scary because I was like, I feel like this is the opening to an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark that never got aired. It's just a very weird delivery man slowly humming Mr. Sandman. Yeah, that was a thing. It was really upsetting. But hey, now I have new face wash, so I'm yeah. glad he came. It's beautiful. You're beautiful. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, anyway, yes, we're doing Pleasantville today, and I am so excited to talk about this movie. I am too, and I know that right off the bat, people are probably going to be like, why are you talking about Pleasantville? Tobey Maguire is the lead in that movie. Wouldn't that make it a teen boy movie? And uh, no, it this is not a teen boy movie, despite the fact that Tobey Maguire is the protagonist. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely a coming-of-age story for women, because as we will discuss and get into, nothing in Pleasantville, like all of that amazing storytelling, it goes nowhere unless women make choices. Yeah, uh, I mean... He's maybe, like, the most minor facilitator. He's maybe more of, like, a narrator for other people's experiences. Agreed, completely. Yeah, so, yeah. Eh. yeah this movie lives and dies by its women. So this is a, a teen girl movie, as far as I'm concerned. Which means we get to talk about teen girl Reese Witherspoon. Yes, we do. Ah! Is this our first Reese Witherspoon? Probably. And this is also, like, that brief foray where she was kind of a bad girl. I know, she did have a couple of movies in the late 90s where she kind of had that little bit of a bad girl streak, which was kind of cool. Which, like, oh my god, the way she sells sexy in this movie. I know, unreal. It's so good. (laughs) So, before we really dive in, Harmony, what was your introduction to Pleasantville before this podcast episode? I definitely caught it on TV at some point and just thought Mm -hmm. it was very visually stunning. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how old I would have been. Certainly... Before high school, so maybe junior high. Okay. Like 12, 13 years old was the first time I saw this movie, and it is still a really gorgeous movie. Mm -hmm. Like, it's shot in, like, a really conventional way for its medium, but also in the black and white makes it really striking, and then there's 
these moments where since it's like pretty much a fixed camera a lot of the time, when there's Dutch angles, I go, wait a minute, there shouldn't be Dutch angles in Pleasantville. Why is everything so off now and unpleasant? Yeah, I think I was about the same when I saw it definitely sometime in junior high, definitely before high school. And I know that a big factor in that is I had downloaded the cover of Across the Universe by Fiona Apple that's at the end of this movie mm-hmm. from LimeWire. I mean, that's also where I got it. One of the two. And it had labeled on there Pleasantville. And I I think I thought that was the name of an album or something. Mm-hmm. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, no, it's a movie. And then watched the movie and was kind of blown away by it. I mean, the cover, though. The cover is so beautiful. It's it's my favorite Fiona Apple song and like nothing to disrespect her original material. But mm-hmm. like, I really love how this song is just it, it, the way it's done. It's it fantastic. is my favorite version of the song Across the Universe, which is my favorite Beatles song. Mm-hmm. So that's really saying something mm-hmm. um, that I prefer her version to I, it. I mean, everyone's covered. David Bowie's covered this. Obviously, the musical Across the Universe covers it. Like, this is the best version. Though. Yeah, there's there is a really great Rufus Wainwright cover that I also like, but Fiona Apple just brings, there's just something to it when it comes out of her register that I just, mm-hmm. it's so much better. Yeah. So before we dive into our plot synopsis, this is your friendly reminder that if you would love to support the show, you can do so by supporting us on Patreon. We remember to do it at the start we of the show to this do time. It at the beginning. Because we're told we're supposed to. <laughs> Patreon.com backslash the sunset prom. We have mini sodes, playlists, commentary tracks, all sorts of fun stuff over there. And our tiers of giving start at just one dollar. So it really really does help keep the lights on and you know, make it worth our time because we put a lot of effort into this podcast. It's true. And God, the lineup of teen boy movies I have planned for you this month. I know you hate me. It's fine. Oh, hey, one (laughs) of these is much better than the other. And that's saying something. (laughs) And if you are currently not in a financial space to be able to support in that way, we totally understand. And all we ask from that is support us by sharing the show with a friend or giving us that five star review on Apple iTunes. It really genuinely does help. But with all that business out of the way, let's dive into our plot synopsis from our friend Dango. Impressed by high school student David, Tobey Maguire's devotion to a 1950s family TV show, a mysterious television repairman, Don Knotts, provides him with a means to escape into the black and white program with his sister Jennifer, Reese Witherspoon. While David initially takes to the simplistic, corny world of the show, Jennifer sets about jolting the characters with doses of reality that unexpectedly bring a little color into their drab existence. Mm, yeah, that seems like a pretty fair synopsis of it without giving too much away. Oh yeah, definitely. That's the the spoiler prevention synopsis, and that's that's good in my book. Yeah, and something that we should probably do more often, because it's always really nice for the context, is I actually had us watch the trailer for Pleasantville before mm-hmm. we sat down to record because I was like, how do you even market this movie specifically? Mm-hmm. And it's got the inner world guy doing this, doing his shtick. And like most of the trailer makes it seem a lot zanier and goofy than it actually is. Yeah, this definitely is pitched as like a fish out of water. Can you imagine these wacky kids from the 90s back in the 50s? It is that kind of energy to uh-huh. it. And that is not what this movie no. is about. No, it's like so subdued with how funny it is. Mm-hmm. It's really, really well done. Agreed completely. 
Uh, normally around this time, I would ask Harmony to talk about like what was going on culturally in what is this, 1998? 1998. Um, but we wanted to do something a little different this week in terms of setting our context up. Mm-hmm. So, Harmony, take it away. All right. So, we've spent a lot of time in the late 90s because that really was the biggest boom period for teen films. Oh, yeah. 1999, all hail. Yeah. So, By the time you get to 1998, you start to see a very well-established formula for a 90s teen movie to the point where then it starts to subvert what a 90s teen movie looks like. And you got movies kind of like this or or like something like Go, which happens the next year, or John Waters doing Pecker, which came out this year. Like even Small Soldiers, which is supposed to be rated R, was also this year. Like there was a lot of things where it's like, we know what this looks like. Let's try and do something weird within that realm. And we've pretty well covered that with our recaps. So for the sake of really cementing what is going on with this film specifically, I have a book. Harmony read, y'all. I have a book that I actually bought for a different thing that will one day come out, hopefully. Um, But the book is called Mental Hygiene, Classroom Films, 1945 to 1970 by Ken Smith. It's a book from like 1999 or something. (laughs) And also, as I, like, open it to flip to the page, I should say that I bought this book used, and it's signed by Ken Smith, so someone didn't value that enough to keep it, apparently. I feel like this book was used in a college classroom. Like, it very much feels like an academic-assigned textbook. Yeah, probably. But honestly, it's such a fascinating read in terms of understanding one of the most significant and impactful and overlooked things in American media. So explain, for those who may not know, what a mental hygiene film is. So a mental hygiene film, it is an educational film that was sort of seen as like a, a social guidance. It was mm-hmm. it was social engineering and it used techniques borrowed from World War II propaganda films. Mm-hmm. And it was a way of um, sort of help, helping guide teens through very confused periods of their lives. Absolutely. I mean, we see these films like at least this style of filmmaking reused typically for humorous uh value Mm -hmm. the two biggest examples that i can think of is one the volcano episode of south park Mm -hmm. where they watch the how to survive a volcano movie that's supposed to be very 1950s and it has like the gee whiz what should i do like that sort of mentality Mm -hmm. and then again when we get the how to play dodgeball video in dodgeball yes like those are obviously not mental hygiene films because they're not talking about social issues but it's that style of filmmaking. That's kind of the world we're playing with here. Well, there's a lot of genres within like the mental hygiene right. film. Um, like Reefer Madness is like a little before this time, but it is very much that kind of film. Yeah, this is very like when we're talking mental hygiene, we're also kind of dealing with like uh, if you're feeling not so fresh. Maybe you should powder your nose because then boys will like you and you won't feel as shitty about having cramps. Yes, and you would see these black and white ones about kids hiding under their desks to evade nuclear bombs, Mm -hmm. which would then reemerge again later in like the 70s during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And And now we just do school shooter drills and act like it's normal. uh, Yes, and like odds are you've seen some version of one of these films, if nothing else, in like Driver's Ed. Because that is an ancestor of this thing. So to quote Mr. Ken Smith in his book, Mental hygiene films, like a polio sugar cube or a measles shot, were conceived as preventative medicine. Kids would watch them and learn that being selfish, arrogant, 
undemocratic, or delinquent would make them unhappy, or, depending on the producer, dead. <laughs> Conversely, those who played by the rules and maintained the status quo were rewarded with popularity, fun, and a lifespan that extended into their 20s. The people responsible for these films were driven by a sincere desire to guide young people towards behavior that they felt would make them happy. It's no fun to be lonely or physically unattractive, nor is it enjoyable to be a heroin addict or to have your face torn off in a car wreck. Mental hygiene films isolate these issues from the noise and confusion of everyday life. They present a perfect world, even with imperfections, are perfectly imperfect, strategically scripted to drive home whatever point the film wishes to make. No dialogue is haphazard, no meaning is misunderstood, no timing flawed, Watch enough mental hygiene films, even a half century after they were made, and you sometimes forget that. You're thunderstruck by how clear it all seems, how simple and logical. What a dummy you must be. Why hadn't you seen the answer before? <laughs> it just makes life seem so simple, doesn't it? <laughs> so that's kind of what you're dealing with in terms of like learning about periods or how to interact with your peers or what it's like to be a, a good child for your parents. Like a number of these exist on YouTube. And... These were meant as a way of really manipulating kids, but what I find really interesting about them and something like Leave to Beaver is that these are preventative films, mm -hmm. and had kids really been like this in the 1950s or the 60s or any other period, they wouldn't have needed to exist in the first place. Exactly. When we talk about things like Leave it to Beaver or the Andy Griffith show and any anything from this sort of era, and especially in these mental hygiene films, we are painting a world that is very idealized. This is, this is what Reagan and Trump are talking about when they talk about, quote unquote, make America great again. Mm -hmm. They're talking about this world. This world, though, also didn't really exist. No. Like, it is a fabricated lie that we've all been kind of fed for our entire existence. There was a thing that was going around on TikTok that I loved the other day, where this woman who does sort of like vintage living, that's her her whole gimmick, is all of her the appliances in her house are vintage, she dresses vintage, that's the whole thing. And she talks about how there was a ridiculous drug problem of stay-at-home moms in the mm -hmm. 1950s and how we never talk about it. All we ever talk about is like, moms in the 50s, they could keep the entire house clean and do a four-course meal and have it ready for dinner time and look beautiful and raise the family and everything was great. How did she do it all? Everyone today just must be so lazy. When that's not the case, the difference is that like she was on fucking drugs speed. and speed was on yeah she was on like moms of the fifties were on speed mm -hmm. and it, it's it's really ridiculous like how we don't talk about what was really going on, but the things that we have television and movies and these mental hygiene films these documented things we only have the idealized look at that time period mm -hmm. and everything else has sort of been like washed away because like ah, McCarthyism and communism and that's scary let's not talk about it mm -hmm. and that all got pushed away and we don't ever learn about that time period like mm -hmm. if you ask anybody what was it like in the 1950s they will likely describe to you the world of leave it to beaver despite that not being how the world actually functioned mm -hmm. and I think that that's something really really worth pointing out about this movie because it uses a lot of, um, well, we'll say it's heavy-handed in some circumstances, but in a way yes. that I think is very well done. In a it's way very... that I also think is very necessary given its target audience. Yes, especially for when it comes out and like it's very on the nose of some of its metaphors. However, 
what I think works about this is that this is not a film that is critiquing like 1950s, 1960s America. It's making commentary on the media of that era. Correct. That media influence on society is, is very, very important because so we can we can kind of dive into the movie itself. Mm-hmm. So the first person that we really meet is David, so Toby Maguire's character, and he's kind of kind of a loner. He's a kind loser. of a loser. He's he's um, trying to hit on a girl, or at least reenacting what he would do if he was hitting yeah. on a girl who's currently talking to a different boy. Yeah, he's a little unwashed. Um, mm-hmm. I'll also say oh, that greasy shag, Ugh, that nineties greasy shag. It's, it's not a good look for him. <laughs> and mind you, this is also pre Spider Man Toby Maguire. This is one of his earlier roles. And I think this period of his career kind of gets blended together a little bit. Oh, yeah. So, Spider-Man doesn't come out for like another four or five years. Yeah. So he's he's real young in this. But he is obsessed with this show called Pleasantville, which is, for lack of a better comparison, it's Leave it to Beaver. Mm-hmm. And it makes perfect sense to me that he would be obsessed with this show because it paints a life that doesn't exist for him. Um, it's very idealized, it's it's very digestible, it's very palatable, and it's a world that he does not have to exist in. Like, there's a very safe distance for his ability to enjoy Pleasantville. And well, like, yeah. It's, it's escapism. Correct. Like, the thing we see that he's learning about in school, like, he's learning about all of these horrible things that are happening, which some of these statistics hold up, sort of. Most of them are horribly wrong. But at least in terms, at least how they are now. Yeah. No, there were a couple, though, that we both kind of were like, oh, God, because the, you know, you go through the school day and they talk about like, first they they rattle off a statistic about AIDS, mm-hmm. which fortunately is no longer accurate mm-hmm. because we have modern medicine. Yes. Everyone take your prep. Um, so that's great. Um, but then they talk about like global warming, global warming. Uh, and it's like, oh, no, we're worse now oh, than what yeah. you thought we were in 1998. Like, <laughs> we did way worse. Um, but they talk about like all of these trends of like, hey, we need to act now or the world's going to end. And it's like, oh, good news. We didn't. We didn't. <laughs> Oops. It's worse now. In my defense, I was seven. I couldn't have made any informed decisions <laughs> in 1998. Yeah, exactly. For those of you going on to college next year, the chance of finding a good job will actually decrease by the time you graduate. The available number of entry level jobs will drop 31% over the next four years. Median income for those jobs will go down as well. Obviously, my friends, it's a competitive world. And good grades are your only ticket through. In fact, by the year 2000... The of contracting HIV from a non-monogamous lifestyle will climb to 1 in 150. The odds of dying in an auto accident are only 1 in 2,500. Now, this marks a drastic increase. From 14 years ago, when ozone depletion was at just 10% of its current level. By the time you are 30 years old, average global temperature will have risen two and a half degrees, causing such catastrophic consequences as typhoons, floods, widespread drought, and famine. Okay, who can tell me what famine is? I know it's a little early for me to bring up an article, but this is what I'm going to refer to throughout the episode because it is incredible. This is an article from Vice by an author whose name I'm going to butcher, and I apologize so much, Baze Mimcha, and uh, they write about David liking the show, and it says, it's so obvious why David is so preoccupied with this wholesome show. The characters are always happy. Life is predictable and safe. Nothing ever goes wrong. The community is depicted as an idyllic place void of everything that's unpleasant. 
Unfortunately, that includes people of color. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I really want us to, to, to focus on, too, because Pleasantville as a movie is a movie that criticizes not just the media of the 50s, it's also a metaphor for racism and, like, a oh, yeah. very heavy-handed metaphor for they, racism. They, as people get color, they refer to them as coloreds. Correct. Yes. Um, it's... It, again, it's he- not subtle. Heavy-handed with its metaphors, yes. Yeah, it's uh, it's not subtle. But uh, as the writer points out, even if it's an irony, couldn't the filmmaker see that calling a place where only white people live Pleasantville a bit concerning? And twenty years later, this question is what I still fixate on when I think about the film. Mm-hmm. It is very important to understand that this movie, in my opinion, was made specifically in mind to educate white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the de- the decision to have the community be exclusive to being white people is an intentional choice that I have. I, I do have mixed feelings about it. Uh-huh. I I can see them trying to make this message about racism without doing it at the expense of actual people of color. Uh-huh. And that in one way, I'm like, okay, that I kind of get it. I'm in favor of it. Also, considering the fact that most of these shows from the 50s that it's parroting also did not include people of color. Yeah, we even talk about on this show, like more modern examples of media, which mm-hmm. are very, very white. Mm-hmm. You really think like Leave it to Beaver is going to be have people other than white people? Very, very white people. Yeah. Like the whitest of black and white kind of people. Yeah. And that is a thing that you also see in these mental hygiene films that are super influential on the media of this time. Mm -hmm. When they made their mental hygiene films that were teaching people how to act, how to be the best way to be an all-American kid, what that meant was how to assimilate to white culture. That is what they were doing Small to these town, kids. Small town, sanitized, suburban culture. Absolutely. and The nuclear family. And it's it's really insidious when you recognize it for what it is. Like, it's, it's easy to make fun of these films because they are hokey and they are cheesy. But their propaganda to mm-hmm. upholding the status quo of white supremacy. It's, it's manipulation. Mm-hmm. And the thing with, like, the thing with these educational films that they showed in schools... Those are meant to be educational. There's there's a goal with those. Is it better or worse when the shows at home were that but for entertainment? Eh, kind of worse. It, it, yeah, right? It's... And uh, yeah. this is also... And honestly, I love that we're getting to talk about the 50s specifically because that's not really an, a decade we're ever going to really get a touch on on the show. No, because women weren't allowed to be the forefront of stories. Yeah. <laughs> Not until, like, we get beach movies in the 60s, really. Yeah. So this is going to be kind of the only time we ever really get or really sink our teeth into this, probably. Mm-hmm. But this is also a period where you have the Hays Code. Oh, yeah. Things have to be the most sterile and obvious and non-conflicting stories they, they could possibly be. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very dark period in terms of media output and what we were, quote-unquote, allowed to do Mm -hmm. and we see that reflected in the shows that pleasantville is 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 taking inspiration from as well as pleasantville itself Mm -hmm. and that's why i do have mixed feelings about the representation in this movie because on one hand it is very alarming to to see it presented in this way Mm -hmm. especially when this is a film about racism and white people do not experience racism Mm -hmm. um but at the same time 
there's a weird sense of relief that this is a film about racism that is not being done at the expense of black trauma and and the emotional labor that would be required of you know people of color who may have been cast in this in this show Mm -hmm. um so again mixed feelings complicated holding two truths at the same time that's sort of the bread and butter of this show. That's what we try. For. That's what we try to do here. Bread and butter. My hands are awfully buttery. Things slip sometimes <laughs> out of them, but we're doing our best. Yeah, and and that's what we're kind of getting here with David. Is it's very telling that he's so obsessed with this show. Like, what does it say about him that the world he wants to live in is also this world that's devoid of conflict mm-hmm. and non-white people? Yeah, and. There's also something that you see about that now where obviously for David, a large part of it is that he hates his home life. Correct. He's looking for the perfect family because his family's broken. Yeah. Like he is so excited when he gets to have like these loving parents and have this ridiculously overmade American breakfast. To be fair, I would also be very stoked if my parents were William H. Macy and Joan Allen. Yes. I, I think William H. Macy is maybe one of the most underrated actors of his generation when we talk about the all-time greats. Yeah. No, I agree. I, it, he's incredible. He, he mostly plays like one character and it's this character, but God damn it if he's not so fucking good. Yeah. he William H. Macy made a career on playing this character and then subverted it to be on Shameless, and mm-hmm. now he gets trophies. Yes. He deserves better. William H. Macy, a god. I love him. I can't wait to talk about him later in the episode. I really think his character is super fascinating. But there's something that can be really said about the um, the obsessive comfort of this, which we have with people now, where, you know, people who are rewatching The Office for the 800th time, people who are rewatching Parks and Rec or 30 Rock or any anybody's favorite show that they're rewatching for the, the however many time mm-hmm. and that is escapism mm-hmm. and it's just a matter of which thing you feel like obsessing over and which thing resonated with you and why it resonates with you mm-hmm. and what you're getting out of it and that is obviously a very complicated thing and there's no universal answer for that but right because it's different for every person and it's different for every show that they are fixating on correct i i mean i have some very very kind friends that for the first couple seasons related to bojack horseman a little too much and then they went oh god i think i need to go to therapy and they did mm-hmm. so <laughs> but that aspect of this which doesn't get super focused on because it really is only prevalent during the beginning and the end of the movie is still wildly relevant now. Mm -hmm. Especially now that we have the accessibility of things like streaming services where you can do these binge-watching things. Because the big thing that David is really pumped about is that there is a Pleasantville marathon. marathon. And he can win $1,000 if he knows all the trivia. Which he can because he does. He knows everything. He knows everything about it. Mm -hmm. And that's how we used to have to consume things. If we wanted to watch a all-nighter of our favorite show we had to schedule it Mm -hmm. i remember very very vividly i was staying at my grandma's house for new year's eve and my dad asked like gave me a blank tape and he said record all of the south park new year's eve marathon (laughs) because he wanted to watch it Mm -hmm. and him and my mom were out doing like new year's eve shit i think they were bartending actually and I was like, okay, cool. But my grandma like hated the show because it was so vulgar. Mm-hmm. And my parents were very much like, we got like the letter home that was like, 
from the PTA telling warning parents like this may be animated, but it's not for kids. And my parents <laughs> were like, fuck that noise. We're watching it. Going to watch it as a family. Yes. So <laughs> there is a VHS tape either in my parents place or in some someone's home picked up from a garage sale that is like six hours worth of South Park. And every once in a while randomly will jump over to kablam because there was a kablam marathon on nickelodeon happening at the same time and that's what i would go to when my grandma came out of her bedroom to go to the bathroom oh god i just i love that so much (laughs) (laughs) but that's how we used to have to watch things like binging wasn't an option no and And now it is i've never been a person who's really good at binging in general but something's bingeability is kind of a perk now like that that's a point that needs to be a selling point for shows now mm-hmm. people don't like shows if they aren't bingeable it's one of the reasons why the last seasons of black mirror were not nearly as successful because that's an exhausting show to binge mm-hmm. it's like like emotionally painful yeah and honestly i think that's the point mm-hmm like, yeah, it should it, out. it should beat you down. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I think there's a lot of interesting things about David, and we'll probably go into that a little bit more once we're actually into Pleasantville. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about the early sections of Reese Witherspoon? I'm obsessed with her. I have such an affinity for the late 90s bad girl look that is just cropped baby doll white t-shirts and chokers. Oh, that that whole crew. They all have the same yeah, outfit. So Reese Witherspoon's best friends in that scene are Jenny Lewis, uh, who, you know, is a singer and then is also Hannah in True Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And then Marissa Rabisi, who is in uh, Dazed and Confused. So she has like a rad group of friends, but they are all wearing cro- like cropped white baby dolls. Uh, you know, maybe the the black Adidas jacket wrapped around their waist they're mm-hmm. smoking cigarettes mm-hmm. they're bad girls such bad girls and i love them <laughs> and she she wants this guy to come over and they're gonna watch a concert on mtv so then they have to fight over a tv as siblings do mm-hmm. because god forbid one of them go upstairs and watch it the, the other tv it doesn't have stereo david eh. the thing is david should have just sucked it up he should have been nicer i agree and here's why i agree do I think that the guy that Jen is going on a date with kind of sucks eggs? Yes, I do. Yeah, he calls her a bitch. Like after three seconds and of her not answering like, the door. Oh my God, he's still so hot. <laughs> <laughs> no, the reason that I am on team David should have sucked it up is that David's watching a show from the 1950s. You don't need stereo and surround sound. They didn't have surround she sound. Was wa- she was watching a concert on MTV. That requires better sound. It's 1998. It's probably like sync or something. Yeah, probably. You, you need that Max Martin production to really <laughs> shine with the surround sound. Yeah, so that, that's where I am with that. But anyway, they, they are arguing over the TV. The remote breaks. Don Knotts shows up be, out of some, like, nostalgic magic in a very perfectly cast role for him. Oh, my God. Is it ever? Like, what metacasting? It's a, it's a great it, it like, meta It has to be Don Knotts. It, it has to be Don Knotts. And if it's not Don Knotts, then it should have been Henry Winkler. Like, those yeah. are your options. Yeah. Um. Anyway, Don Knotts gives them this magic remote and the two siblings get sucked into the world of Pleasantville and it is interesting because it's not just like oh they're back in time into the 50s like no they're in the the world of the TV there's no toilets things don't burn all of the books are empty mm-hmm. like the classes they attend it's nothing like nothing exists outside of Pleasantville nothing exists outside of Pleasantville and, everything is done a certain way and maybe it's just also the black and white of it but there's something horrifying about this that feels like the twilight zone a little bit yeah and speaking of narratives that talk about 
heavy subjects without addressing them specifically. That's another show that does a lot of things that Pleasantville mm-hmm. does. Yeah, and Twilight Zone's great. God damn it, if Twilight Zone never missed. For real. We rewatched a couple episodes on Halloween and we were just like, God damn, this show like is still relevant now and in some cases more relevant than yeah. it was. This Twilight Zone is one of those dark horses for one of my favorite shows that but that yeah. that I would never go to first, but if you sit there and think about it, go, fuck, it might be the Twilight Zone. It's just yeah. so damn good. <laughs> so like but for real, like if you really think about it, there's nothing that exists outside of Pleasantville. Mm-hmm. If you go to the end of Main Street, it loops around to the other side of Main Street. Mm-hmm. The books are empty. No one knows anything. There's no rain. It's always 72 degrees. And depending on your idea of things, this is either perfect or in the case of Jennifer Reese Witherspoon's character, this is a goddamn nightmare. Yeah. Because it's it would be to me. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. Like, And I love that when David gets there, he, of course, first is like, this is everything that he's ever dreamed of. But the longer he's there, the more he realizes, oh, no, no, this is broken and fucked up, too. This is not okay. Like, there's something very wrong about being in a place that is this perfect and this idyllic. Like, you can't exist this way. Yeah, and... There is some, um, some some religious imagery that exists in this in this movie. Oh yeah, like mom diddles herself, and God damn it, if that bush doesn't burst into flames, like oh god, mm-hmm. <laughs> like there, there's there's a Garden of Eden thing. Like there's there's some heavy <laughs> religious imagery that just sort of slides in here under the under the shadow of night. See, and that's the thing that that's what they did though with mental hygiene films in the fifties mm-hmm. and with Leave It to Be. Like all of it has this tinge of. Christian values above everything, the nuclear family. Like, it's so heavy Christian. Yes, and this is kind of what I've always imagined the concept of heaven is from learning about it in, like, Sunday school. And it sounds so tedious Mm -hmm. and so boring, and you truly cannot appreciate sunny days without cloudy days. But the basketball team never misses a shot. Nothing ever goes wrong. Everything's perfect, and there's so much mundanity to that that – it sounds horrifying. Well, it reminds me a lot of the the number 12 looks just like you episode of The Twilight Zone where if everyone is beautiful, then no one is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Pleasantville exists as. Like if everything is perfect, then nothing is perfect. Mm-hmm. And that is what Jen and David bring in as their new aliases of Bud and Mary Sue mm-hmm. um, because that's who they are. Um, and they, they shake things up and... The thing I love the most about shaking things up is that, yes, the people of Pleasantville are a little confused at first Mm -hmm. because it is different and it's kind of like a, whoa, this is a weird thing. But as Jen says, like, they don't want to be geeks. Mm -hmm. They want to feel attractive and they want to feel desired and they want to be cool. And it's that innate desire that people have to want to be better. They've just never been given the option. Yes, and this is really the first time where we see how... All of the conflict is resolved and all of the plot is pushed ahead by Jennifer mm-hmm. having sex with ultimate himbo Paul Walker. Paul Walker is so great in this movie. It is probably his best cast performance. Oh, he's so good. He does that thing that I really love where someone smiles so much, but in such a specifically dopey way, you can hear them talking through their smile where he's like, hey, Mary Sue. I'm just, it's just so swell that you're here. I'm so excited to see you. And also Skip Martin. What a great name <laughs> for so, him. It's so all-American. <laughs> but yeah, that really is the the catalyst for all of the change is because Jen is, you know, feeling some kind of way about being in Pleasantville and missing that date. And then she sees Skip Martin and is like, God damn, look at this hot slice of American meat mm-hmm. and goes after him. 
And the first instance of something being different is Tobey Maguire's character trying to explain to him like, oh, yeah, she might not like you knowing full well that like Jen is not Mary Sue and this yeah. might not work. And Paul Walker as Skip is like, I don't know what I would do if she wouldn't go out with me. He has an existential crisis. He has an existential crisis. And then it's he the f- misses a basket. Because he's never been told no. Like nothing's ever not worked out for him. And yeah. this is his first time experiencing what is even the possibility of rejection. Mm-hmm. And he misses the basket. Mm-hmm. And from there, like, the world of Pleasantville changes. It obviously really kicks up a notch because Reese Witherspoon has sex with him and it blows his fucking mind. The, it's the butterfly effect of Reese Witherspoon maybe or maybe not having sex with this boy. And mm-hmm. then the entire world changes. Yeah. The entire world of Pleasantville changes because Jen has sex. And in a weird way, there that you could definitely make an interpretation of, like, a Virgin Mary sort of situation. She's of not like, a virgin. She's not a virgin, obviously. <laughs> but like the idea of this one woman's like a body changes everything. Mm-hmm. Like you can make that read, but of course, the, there's a lot of reads you can make with this, right? Um, it's, 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 so yeah. <laughs> so what what's interesting is then you know this kind of sparks the domino effect of other people in Pleasantville also having sex. There's that great scene. Of all the cars in Lover's Lane with just feet hanging over oh, yeah, the sides. Oh, they're 69ing apparently. Yeah, they're like 69ing and blowing each other. In uncomfortable way. <laughs> and these positions, we're sitting there like, I get what this looks like for filming purposes, but like, what are y'all doing in there? Like, God, I hope that they're not like on the stick shift. Like, they're laid across the front seat. It looks terrible. <laughs> you don't understand. You're messing with their whole goddamn universe. Maybe it needs to be messed with, David. Did that ever occur to you? Hey, MS, how you doing? Cool, PJ, how you doing? Cool. <laughs> cool. Cool. Cool, cool, what are you doing to these people? You can't do this to them. If I don't do it, who will? No, but they're happy like this. No, David, nobody is happy in a poodle skirt and a sweater set. You really like this, don't you? No, it's not like you think it's funny or dorky or anything. You, like, really like it. No, you have it all wrong. Thank God, I am personally mortified to be your sister. So that kind of sparks like this this butterfly effect, like you said, and what ends up happening is like pops of color begin to appear uh-huh. in, in Pleasantville. The the car people are having sex with turn colors. Bubblegum that they're chewing to be flirtatious uh, turns colors. Their mouths change colors because they've been kissing. They get they get red lipstick, mm-hmm. that harlot red. Uh-huh. And god damn it, if this does not benefit the person who gets the top billing in the trailer. Mr. Jeff Daniels playing Mr. Johnson. Jeff Daniels is so sweet and charming in this movie. He's got such lovely eyes. I love him so much. Bill Johnson, just diner, proprietor, artist, just what what a dreamboat. He just, he loves painting and he only gets to do it once a year where he gets to paint the windows for Christmas and it's his favorite thing and... He's not motivated by sex, which is where we start to see the changes of this kind of blossoming out from just the idea of, like, carnal teenage lust. Mm-hmm. And it's, I just think it's one of the most beautiful scenes where you have David give him a book of, like, famous paintings. Mm-hmm. And, like, I know what a Picasso looks like. I know what a Van Gogh looks like. Mm-hmm. I, love what, I know what a Monet looks like. But seeing them in the context of this movie where I've spent the last 40 minutes, which, by the way, this movie earns its two-hour runtime really so well. But you spend 40 minutes in black and white, 
And it's very sterile. It's very all-American. It's very plain. Mm -hmm. And then you start to see these colors and these lines. And God, these paintings have never looked so beautiful to me. And especially because you get to also see them through his eyes. Yes. Of somebody who's never seen something like this before. Like, it makes me think of when I see those videos of people who are colorblind getting the glasses that correct their colorblindness. And they see what the world actually looks like for the first time. I mean, I could have that because because Bill because <laughs> Bill Johnson is just like, oh, I don't know, David. I I don't know if I could ever see colors like that. And I'm like, same, dude. Yeah, because you're colorblind. Like, <laughs> I can't see colors like that. <laughs> same, bro. But like, okay, even me who is like partially colorblind, this movie is still gorgeous. The mm-hmm. colors still pop because they are like the most overblown Technicolor in the way that something like Wizard of Oz is. Right. And contrasting with that, it's it's gorgeous. Yeah, it looks fantastic. It's it's really beautiful. And then the paintings he does are gorgeous, and I love them. <laughs> and goddammit, if Jeff Daniels is not, like, such an accomplished actor who sells me on this mm-hmm. so well. And the only thing I knew him from before this was Dumb and Dumber. Just the range he has. Uh, That's really what it comes what down to. What an actor. To, the range. <laughs> um, but talking about Bill Johnson, though, is it brings up this thing that we talked about while we were watching it is that when Tobey Maguire comes in and notices that the restaurant isn't like the opening tasks have not been done because he Mm -hmm. was late and Bill Johnson is just like wiping down the wiping down is just wiping down the counter he's wiping the enamel off the counter yes because he's just been doing it clearly for hours and Tobey Maguire is like you can do this without me and is having to explain to him like you don't have to do things the exact same way over and over again. I think it's this really beautiful metaphor of the fact that there are people in this world who will cling to tradition Mm -hmm. and cling to the way it's always been done even to their detriment. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where like I I don't want to okay boomer this, but there are people in this world who actively vote against their better interests because it's what they've always done. And you're like, but but your circumstances have changed. Like, your life has changed, and you should mm-hmm. vote accordingly. And they're like, nope, that's just, I've always voted Republicans. So I'm always going to. And it's mm-hmm. like, but you, you're literally not going to have Social Security anymore. Like, I don't understand what you're doing. <laughs> okay, but on that OK Boomer note, this is a beautiful film about how these kids should not be in charge of making these changes, but they're doing it and it benefits everyone. Mm -hmm. Like these kids are teaching their parents. Yeah. These kids are pushing things forward. And obviously there's opposition, like the most aptly named kid of of Whitey. Whitey, fuck Whitey. Whitey and his gang of similarly dressed boys want to like rape some woman in the street. Mm -hmm. Like that's just a thing that's going to happen in Pleasantville during like the peak of discourse. Mm -hmm. Like fuck me. Um, But it is these kids pushing things forward. And for this context, in this period of 1958, I think that is so fascinating Mm -hmm. because this is not too long after where kids finally got their own culture. Yeah. And that's part of why the mental hygiene films were pushed so heavily in schools because they were seeing this happening and they they write it off as like teenage rebellion and rock and roll and whatever Mm -hmm. else you want to call it. But the reality is it was the first time where teenagers, people who were young adults were realizing, hey, we have a say in this. Mm -hmm. Like they were shipping kids off to go to fucking war Mm -hmm. and they were like, what? Because this is, you know, after... 
World War II mm -hmm. and before Vietnam. So there's a little bit of unrest and teenagers realizing like, no, 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 we have autonomy and we have cars and we can do things and we can be who we want to be. Mm -hmm. And that scared the shit out of their parents. Yeah. And that's the teenage culture that exists weirdly during this period that most people associate with like a caricature of its era, like Greece. Mm -hmm. Like that's what people think are like, oh, well, what, what does this period look like? It looks like Greece and it doesn't look like Greece. No. And like the music of rock and roll and like the autonomy of being able to drive and all of these facets all collide and create the seeds of pretty much everything that has existed since that. Mm -hmm. And like, fuck Elvis, but like Elvis was kind of goddamn important. Yeah. Um, the soundtrack to this film, honestly, it favors white rock and roll artists a little bit more than it probably should. Mm -hmm. But you have... Which makes sense in the world of Pleasantville, though. Well, of course. But you have moments where, like, everyone's having their mind blown about books. Mm -hmm. And the music that's playing in the back is, is Miles Davis. And it's like, oh, hey, the jazz artist who literally broke down all rules of music and influenced everything since then. Perfect. Love it. Mm -hmm. And it all expands out from there. And it's the soundtrack is so beautifully love, done. Like, yeah, the most beautiful scene in the entire movie is that driving shot with the cherry blossoms yeah. and there's just pink everywhere and at last is playing yeah. and it's just like oh my god like it is one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen in any film and yeah. not just because of the way that it's shot and the color but it, it, it swells with the music like you mm -hmm. watch those pedals just flow to her voice and mm -hmm. it's just breathtaking like it's so beautiful first of all that scene must have been a bitch to edit yeah because of all the <laughs> like individual, individual pedals. pedals oh but there is kind of this hokiness to like the doo-wop and like maybe the buddy holly for anybody who's not you know he's not your taste i like buddy holly a little bit like he's pretty tight oh boy is my favorite song by him anyway but the best songs feature black artists and i think mm -hmm. that that is a beautiful little touch which whether intentional or not really says about how the most impactful parts of teen culture and american culture that are influenced by black is people. influenced by black people yeah absolutely and especially so when you have this this world where they they don't have that exposure elsewhere because it's a exclusively white town mm -hmm. um and it does kind of make me think about what we talked about in our hellfest episode where seth was sharing how because of the way television worked and seeing yo mtv raps because that's what came on before headbangers ball that mm -hmm. that introduced him to an entire world of music that he otherwise would not have been exposed to we're, we're referencing public enemy in this episode about pleasantville <laughs> yeah we sure are <laughs> he got to meet chuck d that shit's awesome i would love to meet chuck d i'm jealous <laughs> um but like that's what's happening in pleasantville like you know when they get the jukebox and they they get new music like mm -hmm. that's a that's a thing that they don't talk about as much like they play it and there's that scene where she's like you gotta turn that off you can't listen to that and i also love that when they the <laughs> The city establishes their rules of like appropriate music. One of them is John Philip Sousa. It's <laughs> <laughs> ah, so funny. There's a lot of these beautiful little. That's moments. a good joke for anyone who's ever been in band. Yeah, there's so many of these sneaky little jokes that I absolutely love about this movie. Um, what's the other one that we really, really like? Is that like someone's yelling about a neighbor's door being blue, and he goes, "But it was it's always, always blue." blue. <laughs> there's so many little things about like, well, we're safe for now. 
Thank God we're in a bowling alley. Yeah. <laughs> there are some really, really great lines that uh, kind of sneak in there. And I think that's where the humor lies. Is like, obviously, we get the juxtaposition humor of just the, the, the fish out of water situation. Like, the reaction of Paul Walker when he's talking about giving his pin to Mary Sue and Reese Witherspoon's like, maybe I should just pin you. And the genuine, like absurdity laugh that Paul Walker elicits because it's not like a winky like I'm nervous what does that mean or like oh no I guess I'm in trouble now like it is a genuine laugh like it is the most ridiculous thing he's ever heard because girls don't get pins to give to boyfriends (laughs) what are you talking about crazy (laughs) and it like stuff like that is so good but yeah, it's the little sneaky ones that are just chef's kiss. They're, the, they're fantastic. This movie makes me laugh um, with its like a criticism of America in the same way that something like King of the Hill does, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh no, I don't have any like deep guffaws. Like I'm not sitting here like slapping my knee like this is the most hilarious thing I've ever seen, but it's consistently just hitting me with these little zingers that make me exhale yes. through my nose and go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just that little bit and just like- That's all you need. It, it makes me feel good and it's so understated because- Anything more than that would feel really out of place. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I agree completely. So another major factor in the the change of Pleasantville comes in the form of mom. Oh, mom and dad. Oh. Um, Mom is the first one. And the reason, again, why I like to justify that Pleasantville is a teen girl movie is this is a coming of age story. And Betty also comes of age. And also As like comes. like a 45-year-old. <laughs> yeah, and also just straight up comes. Yeah. Um, but there's a really wonderful scene between her and Reese Witherspoon where she asks, what do the kids do at Lover's Lane? Mm-hmm. And Reese Witherspoon's like, oh, you know, sex mostly. And she's like, oh, okay. What is sex? Mm-hmm. And it's this beautiful moment because you realize that in Pleasantville, people just exist as they are. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, again, the Hayes Code. Mom and dad sleep in separate beds. Mm-hmm. Sex is not a thing that happens. And it's not because it's like a, ooh, it's bad and dangerous and we can't do that. It just doesn't exist in this world. No one has procreated in this world. Families just exist as nuclear families. And that's how it is. I mean, I'm kind of shocked that they don't have like Kendall parts. You know, that is true because they don't, they don't have, have to toilets, go to the bathroom. So clearly no one's shitting in Pleasantville. But there's then that moment where... It fades to black and you can hear Reese Witherspoon saying, okay, well, when two people love each other very, very much, (laughs) and it is the most like 1950s mental hygiene style explanation of what sex is. Yeah. Um, But what that leads to, because clearly they have a much more in-depth conversation than what most people get for their sex talk with their parents, Mm -hmm. because Betty decides she's going to touch herself. Yeah. And she sets a nice bath and she makes it she, look She makes an evening of it. She makes a whole evening of it. There's candles. Like she really goes all out for it. Like good for you treating yourself. If only she had like a glass of Chardonnay with a single ice cube, then it would just go <laughs> over the top. There's they're not going to be tri- women don't drink in this. <laughs> Men can have martinis and beer, but no. Um <laughs> So yeah, uh, you know, like we referenced earlier, she she has an orgasm and it sets a tree on fire because it is just an explosion of that feeling and mm-hmm. of 
realizing what you've been missing this whole time. The, the beautiful thought of a woman from the 50s having never had an orgasm, and then it's so powerful, it causes a fire. Can you imagine? And then Tobey Maguire has to go running down the street to the fire station just screaming fire and they don't know what that means. <laughs> but then that also leads to a really beautiful moment because when the fire department shows up thinking there's a cat in the tree, that's how they get them there. Mm-hmm. And they don't know what to do. And Tobey Maguire is like, oh my God. And he gives the guy, the fireman the hose and he's like, just hold this. And he turns the hose on and the hose is functional and it puts the fire out. There is this shot where you just get the look of just pure amazement in this man's face it's like when five-year-olds see like space camp for the first time yeah or or whenever you see like a monkey who's been who just witnessed a magic trick yes (laughs) where he's just like oh that's what these do i didn't know these hoses did anything right it's so beautiful so like her coming becomes the catalyst for the fire department having a new meaning. And everyone in town, like, it's a fucking fire. This is the first time fire has ever existed in this world. Mm -hmm. And it changes everything. So the two big catalysts that throw Pleasantville completely, like, into this new world of color and feeling and expression comes from Jennifer wanting to have sex with Paul Walker And from mom having sex with herself. Like, Mm -hmm. women valuing their bodies and their needs changes the entire fucking world. And if that is not a metaphor for reality, then I don't know what is. Honestly, I think it's the most effective metaphor of this entire movie. I agree. Like, the race, the racism stuff is it's obvious and it's heavy-handed. Like, mm-hmm. all you need is Whitey being like, oh, you and your colored girlfriend. All right, we get it. We understand. Yeah. I get what you're doing here. Yeah. But that is the, the story that I find more interesting. And the reason being is going back to this article. Something that the writer points out is that in failing to include people of color, even in just the optics of casting, the film ignores how actual racism and systemic oppression affect every corner of America, even in this fictionalized version. Pleasantville pacifies viewers to the real danger in non-inclusion and really white-splained xenophobia for people of privilege who don't really have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that completely. Like, if there is one criticism to be made about Pleasantville, again, it goes back to that, like, mixed feelings that I have about its its casting decisions. But that point that this writer that this writer makes, yeah. And that's why I think, like, the, the heavy-handed racism metaphor isn't as powerful as the message that it's sending about, like, women. Mm-hmm. And we're recording this episode the day after um, an election, And there's a big thing going around right now where the hashtag of white women is trending. And it's because the the very important uh, governor's race in Virginia went Republican and it went Republican because of white women, Uh uh, specifically non-college educated white women. And um, I don't know why women are so into voting against their own interests. But like women have kind of swayed elections across the board for years. And there's so much power to be had by that demographic and it's not being utilized and it's so frustrating. I mean, it's being utilized just depends on who your opinion of the good guy is. Yeah, that's a really good point. And in a lot of cases, the the women have been fed the belief of Pleasantville. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the 
the upholding of white supremacy and patriarchal society. And it's, uh, it just, it hurts. It hurts my brain. It hurts my soul. It hurts my heart. On that note, though, let's talk about George. Yeah. Because I want to talk about Mr. William H. Macy and how much I love him because his character, despite having all of the earmarks of it, is not a misogynist. Thank you for bringing that up because that is a very excellent point. Mm -hmm. Everything about him, like, oh, I want you home by six. I want my dinner on the table. I want all these things. I don't know how to work the stove because that's a woman's job and all of these things. But he's always been told that. He's never been. He knows literally nothing else. He does not know a damn thing else. Like when he gets home and Betty's not home because she's hanging out with Bill Johnson and they're like doing like a sexy painting thing. Mm -hmm. He comes home and he has this thing of like, um, wait, what? Where he puts his hat on the coat rack and says, honey, I'm home. And there's no response because his routine's been broken Mm -hmm. and he doesn't know how to handle it. You watch a man short circuit. And, like, there's ominous thunder in the background. Because it starts to rain. Because, because things are different Because now. Betty's off there having, like, a sexy, blossoming relationship with Jeff Daniels. And it causes rain. Mm-hmm. Which has never happened. And it's beautiful and scary. But the mayor of this town, I, w- I really would love to know what he's like in the context of actual Pleasantville. Like, the show, not the movie that we're watching. Mm-hmm. Because everything about him reads as a very manipulative, evil man. Mm -hmm. But we only see him really function like that in response to changes that are already happening. Mm -hmm. He might be perfectly pleasant under normal circumstances. But he strikes me as like a real villain as opposed to George, who is just, he's hapless. He loves his wife. He doesn't really, can't explain like as a person why he loves his wife. It's more than just the cooking and the cleaning and all these things. He thinks she's beautiful and he does adore her. But... There's now this conflict of her wanting autonomy and him not knowing how to handle that. Mm-hmm. And he's not a bad person for that. What happened? One minute, everything's fine. The next... What went wrong? Nothing went wrong. People change. People change? Yeah, people change. Can they change back? I don't know. I think it's harder. You okay? Yeah. Yeah. Not fair, you know. You get used to one thing, and then... I know. It's not. And and I agree with you completely, because this is... This is a very interesting sort of thought experiment of, like, is he a bad guy or a misogynist because he's been falling into these tropes, or is he just a victim of these circumstances? Mm-hmm. Because he d- literally knows nothing else. Yeah. So when it's broken, his anger and frustration is not like, how dare this woman do something without me? Or how dare she disobey me? Like, that's not the energy. The energy is, I'm so confused. I don't know what's happening. And I'm scared because I don't know what's happening. And also, he's not allowed to have feelings. Correct, because he's a man in the 1950s. He's not supposed to feel this way. Like, there are these very comic scenes, like um, like when he visits David in jail and he brings him a jar of cocktail olives because he doesn't know how to defrost things. Correct. And, like, that's funny. Or, like, the whole bowling alley scene where some guy, like, reveals, oh, like... Oh, poor Roy has the iron. His, his burnt shirt. When they ask, like, oh, Roy, what happened? It's revealed that his wife 
just spaced out and was thinking. Yeah, she and was that thinking. destroyed his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> because for the first time ever, his wife was having her own thought about something that didn't have to do with pleasing her husband or taking care of the family. And that meant the shirt got burnt. And then he cries about it uh-huh. in front of all of his friends. And it's like this whole thing where they're like, it's okay. It's okay. We understand. Mm-hmm. But even when, like... <laughs> it's it's very funny, but it's also sad. <laughs> because even when George is explaining what happened, he's like, I put my, my briefcase down. I put my hat on. I said, honey, I'm home. But she wasn't there. Like, he tells it like he's a child around a campfire. Mm-hmm. And then, like, he mentions, so then I thought to myself, maybe she made a TV dinner. And all of them are like, yeah, sure. Yeah, it could be that. Because you can see them also getting stressed out at the idea of his wife not being home to have dinner on the table. Because if it, if it can happen to George, it can happen to all of them. Mm-hmm. And that means all of them are at risk of of being insecure they're going to go they're going to starve their way of life and survival is being threatened by women doing things and they don't know what to do with it and there's no one to teach them how to handle this or process it other than the teenagers Mm -hmm. because they're the ones who have kind of figured it out and they kind of have to drag all of the adults of pleasantville kicking and screaming into this new world yeah and one of the most beautiful scenes in this entire movie and again, it breaks down like the gendered roles is when Betty is having like a breakdown as George is calling out to her like, Betty, oh, uh, honey, like trying to get her attention. And she's she's fleshed out with color mm-hmm. and she's having a crisis going like, well, what do I do? I can't hide this. And then David helps her put makeup on. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, really beautiful and really tender scene between like what is essentially like a, a son and a mother. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe not the best thing in that moment. Like ultimately, like she she stops wearing makeup, and right. that's and that's fine. But well, in that scene, she's though, not, she's scared. She's scared. She's and not she, ready yet. She, she's not ready to reveal that about herself. She's not ready to let other people see that. And David, being a good son, is like, I'm going to help you by putting makeup on you, which is not something a boy is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and another thing that you could read about that entire situation is in that moment, you have David essentially acting as an ally for his mom mm-hmm. and knowing like she's ter- in this moment, she's terrified to come out of the closet. She's, and admit, she's coming out as a feminist. Yeah, she's coming out as a feminist, but also that like she's enjoying her life and now she's, you know, she's color and that is a scary world for her. And David isn't pulling that bullshit where it's like, don't worry, honey, it gets better. Live your life. You're great. He's like, oh, no, no, we need to assess your safety in this situation. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to help you. And that is such an important and powerful thing because all too often people talk about, especially on things like National Coming Out Day or whatever, where everyone's like, come out wherever you are, like, be proud, we love you, you know, live your your truth, or you're like, you'll never be happy unless you're honest, blah, blah, blah. That's all fine and dandy. That's very idyllic. That's very uh, pleasant. That's very Pleasantville of you because it's not always safe. And at this point of the movie... It was not safe for her to be out yet. I mean, it's not safe for her at any point. She's the one who Whitey almost rapes in the street. Yeah. Like, that's a thing. Yeah. It was never safe for her. Mm-hmm. And David recognizing that and helping her is is really, really powerful. And there's also this, like, beautiful moment of where you can see, you know, kind of this, like, generational trauma thing happening where mm-hmm. David's breaking that cycle by 
helping and, and helping her heal. And is that the responsibility of children? No, it's not. It's absolutely not. But it is a great moment of empathy. And this is, uh, this is a, a show in a world where it is very much internalized and very much isolated. Mm-hmm. And this is them not only like branching out and, you know, breaking the status quo, but also building a genuine community. Yeah. Not one that is based on of like, we all have our separate roles and our hierarchy and this is just how it is. But like, no, we can work together on all things at all times. It's very, very socialist of them. Yes. Pleasantville becomes socialist. There's a, um, there's a lovely mental hygiene film I watched one time that is essentially like how to have dinner or something like that with the family. Mm -hmm. I think it's called like a dinner date with your family or something like that. It's on (laughs) YouTube. But one of the things that they end up discussing is over dinner, um, it's like, oh, son and daughter, please don't discuss topics that are too unpleasant. Dad had a hard day at work and might not want to hear about it. <laughs> and like, that's a thing that they actually teach you. So there's this weird thing where you have Pleasantville, which is people that are related and like they care about to each other to like a very surface level extent, but they are really just people inhabiting the same home. Mm-hmm. And that that's what my growing up was like. That's what I think David and Jen's life is like. Where they're, like, they're inhabiting a space with their mom, but they don't really talk. They don't really get along. Maybe things are unpleasant. They just don't deal with stuff. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the movie, you have a similar situation where David's real mom, the Malcolm in the Middle mother, yeah. is crying and having a breakdown. He's like, hey, like, just, it's it's fine. Like, we're going we're gonna to work through this. And yeah. it's Let me really... wipe your mascara off of your face because I bet it burns. Yeah, it's it, – it's – it's growth. Like he's learned something from being in Pleasantville rather than being escapist. He actually picked up like a practical life lesson from it. Mm-hmm. He learned empathy. Yeah. By being surrounded by people who have the motivation to be good people and the desire to be good people, but don't know what it actually means to be good. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's a really powerful statement. Well, yeah, without there being anything bad happening, people are never good. Mm-hmm. It's all just one flat feeling. Well, this is going to be like kind of a little philosophical. I mean, that's fine. But if you had to describe how you identify religion-wise, do you consider yourself agnostic or atheist or what would you consider? I mean, logistically, I'm probably atheist, but I really just prefer not to think about it. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, hey, uh, how would you, what, what's your sign? And I go, stop. <laughs> I, like, that's my sign. I just don't want to have this discussion. It, I get nothing good out of it. No one's going to enjoy the conversation they're going to have with me. Right. That's kind of how I feel religiously. Um, I tend to get rather spiced at like very good films like The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. The Exorcist is a damn damn good film Mm -hmm. but i get mad during that film because i don't like christianity and catholicism because i had a bad history with those right so then i can't enjoy this art or digest it the way i'm supposed to right and i think that this works because this film specifically there's a lot of um philosophical conversations there's a lot of ideology there's tinges of religion because it's integrated into american culture because america doesn't have a religion but we but have ev- religion. But we have we're a Christian country, whether we want to be or not, because right. people demand that we are. Right. So um that's that's kind of how I feel about it. It's not there's not a simple answer for that how I feel on that one. You could you could cut corners and just be like, oh, I'm atheist or something, but that's not that's really underselling my feelings, I think. 
So the reason that I asked is because I the, the easiest word that I use is I'm also atheist, but I always tell people I'm, I'm faithless. Like I I don't have mm-hmm. anything. Well, there's a lot of people who say like, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Right. I so it's like, well, what does that. that mean? That could mean anything. Right. I'm not that either. Yeah. I yeah. believe in none of it. Um, but a thing that used to be said to me a lot because where I grew up is very, very sacred and I am quite secular, mm-hmm. um, was, well, all atheists are bad people because they don't have like the goodness of God to motivate them to be good people. Of course. That was a thing I heard constantly. You need to be repaid for your good at deeds. Otherwise, what's the point in doing them? Exactly. And let's go watch Moral Oral. <laughs> right. But that makes me think about this this idea of like if if everyone's good, then no one is good. And this the the, the motivation factor in Pleasantville. And like a lot of people who are really religious, their motivations to be quote unquote good is because of this promised afterlife or mm-hmm. whatever. So then when it comes to someone like myself or like you, the motivation to be good is not rooted in any sort of reward system. It's just kind of intrinsic to our nature. And that's how I feel the the awakened citizens of Pleasantville, I feel like that is their motivation. Like Technicolor citizens. The technicolor citizens of Pleasantville, their motivation for goodness is because it's always been part of their humanity, and now they actually know how to apply that to situations. They know how to defend Bill Johnson and stand up for what's right. They know how to protect one another when they see people being treated differently because of the way they look. Mm-hmm. They're they're learning what actions need to be taken to be good because it's not enough to just say that you're good. You have to show that you're good. And I, I do feel like in a way that does further prove the the vice writer's point in that it's essentially white's planning uh, how to be a good person to, mm-hmm. to a lot of people that don't ever really get impacted by systemic oppression. Mm-hmm. And in a weird way, like, I kind of feel like that's a good thing. Like, that sounds really bad, but I, I have similar feelings about, like, like, Boy Erased, for example, which is a movie about conversion therapy. That movie's not for gay people. It's about gay people. It's not for gay people. Mm-hmm. Boy Erased is for straight people to understand, like, how fucking scary it is to be gay and how traumatizing it is to send a child to conversion therapy. Like, that movie is for parents who would contemplate sending their kids to conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. In the same way, like, there are so many beautiful things that can be taken from Pleasantville, but ultimately, like, this is a movie that is teaching idiot white people how to be better people. And how to fight the systems that have existed forever that have kept us pleasant and feeling like life is a good thing or why people have aspired. Like, Pleasantville reads so much differently in a post-Trump world. It's, it's It makes my head want to It's explode. a lot. Because it feels very much like this is a response to Reagan-era politics. Like, for sure, this is a response to that because Reagan was so desperate to get back to the 50s. But in a post-Trump world... Like, I hate how necessary a film like Pleasantville is because people are that fucking dumb. Mm-hmm. And, like, I know that that's also rude and, you know, in, in some cases people might accuse me of being ableist for saying that. People are fucking dumb. Some people are fucking stupid and they don't understand that there is a bigger world outside of who they are. Mm-hmm. And once upon a time we could make the excuse of they don't have the exposure, they don't have the lived experiences. We have the internet now. You fucking know. 
It's there. It's public. It's knowledge. It is in every newspaper across the country. People know they are actively choosing not to think about it and to stay in their little Pleasantville bubbles. Mm -hmm. And they don't want anything else to to invade that in their minds. They Mm -hmm. don't want to accept that there is a world outside of Main Street that loops around. This behavior must stop at once. But see, that's just the point. It can't stop at once because it's in you and you can't stop something that's inside you. It is not inside me. Oh, sure it is. No, it is not. What do you want to do to me right now? Come on. Everyone is turning colors. Pretty soon, the women could be going off to work while the men stayed at home and cooked. That is not going to happen. But it could happen! No! It could not! And I think that that's obviously the biggest thing that the black and white citizens of Pleasantville are rallying against because all of these new people are perceived as just like living in sin. Like what they're doing is very hedonistic. Mm -hmm. But that's oversimplifying things. Mm -hmm. I think one of the best examples of that that sort of underselling what's going on here is the character growth of Jennifer. Oh yeah. Jennifer and and David's reasoning for becoming technicolor citizens of of Pleasantville is entirely different than everyone else in Pleasantville. Yeah. Like Jennifer even has the line where she's like I've had infinitely more amounts of sex than all these girls and I'm still black and white. What is that all about? Mm-hmm. And it's because that's who she's always been. And they don't reprimand her for it. Like she just chooses a different path. She starts reading and becomes a little bit more interested in her studies. She even has a night where Skip comes over and is like, I thought we were going to, you know. And she's uh-huh. like, no, I'm studying. And he's like, well, why Why are you doing that? And she's uh-huh. like, fuck off, dude, I'm reading. And her her taking a vested interest in her own like intellect is what brings her color. And it's not trying to say that like, oh, this is a better thing for you or like, oh, you're being congratulated for being more conservative. Because if that were the case, then none of the people having sex would have turned color. Mm -hmm. So no, the reason that she gets the color is because she's doing something different. She's breaking the status quo of her own existence. Yeah. She even has a line of like, you know, I used to, I did the slut thing, David, it got a little old. She's not mad at herself or ashamed of herself for who she used to be. She's just choosing to do something different and finds a little bit more joy in that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I, uh, I really think that this is just about people trying to grow and better themselves. Totally. And and I mean, when David gets his color, it's because he sticks up for his mom. He punches out Whitey. And he punches Whitey in the face. Kill Whitey! <laughs> and it's the, it's the first instance in David's life where he actually was an active participant and mm-hmm. did the right thing. Because up until this point... He doesn't point, stand up to anything. No, he no. doesn't stand for anything. Like, I, I hate the, to, to quote Hamilton, but like... If you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? And, like, that's David. Like, mm-hmm. he stands for nothing. And then he finally does, and boom, it's like, okay, you're a fully realized person now. Congratulations. Yeah. And I, I think that that's really important, and I think that that's beautiful. And I, I think something else that's really important in, in terms of our, our heavy-handed metaphors, as the writer from Vice says, 
As the number of colored people in Pleasantville begins to grow, the voices who oppose the transformation get madder and louder. Mm -hmm. At a private meeting in a bowling alley, an alarmed group of middle-aged men decide that it's time to do something about it. Otherwise, there goes the neighborhood. That is real rain out there, gentlemen. It's not some kind of virus that will clear up on its own. Something is happening to our town, and I think we can all see where it's coming from, says the mayor, Big Bob. They organize a town meeting for all true citizens of Pleasantville, and the next day signs that say no coloreds begin to pop up in storefront windows. Things get violent and ugly until David slash Bud gets everyone to finally come back to their senses. If only it were that easy to do away with hate in real life. And I mean, it, it's a nice little storybook ending because this is still Pleasantville. Uh-huh. It After, at the end of the day, it is still Pleasantville, but I think that it's really telling something that the people who are afraid of that change, they are either have that sense of bewilderment like George, or they respond to it the way that Bob and, you know, people like Whitey do with just such vitriol mm-hmm. and anger. Mm-hmm. And... The mayor ends up being the last person to change over to color. Mm-hmm. And he does it because he finally like has an outburst and stops being pleasant. He says the quiet part out loud. Yeah. He essentially admits that he's a fucking racist. And that's what makes him change is like you're finally being honest. Mm-hmm. Because up until that point, he's working in pleasantries and not being fully honest about his feelings because he knows that they're not good oh no he's an asshole like the first time like, we meet the mayor he comes walking in and roy's getting his hair cut he's like oh roy i could never take your seat and then, and he then sits down in roy's seat. like we know exactly who this guy is from the jump exactly he sucks he's that shitty guy though that has a caveat for everything though so you can't exactly nail him because it's like well, I told you that I couldn't take your seat, Roy. You got up for you me. You offered it. You offered it. Like it's, what I, it's very impolite much... if I say no. Exactly. It's that bullshit. He sucks. So yeah, he changes over when he finally is like, no, that can't happen. Like, no. Mm-hmm. I hello world. I'm a racist, and it's like cool. Welcome to the party. Now everyone knows your true colors. Yeah. Yep. And then everyone switches over, and they go outside. And gosh, dang it! If that grass has never looked so green. It looks so beautiful. <laughs> and then also the movie ends with, you know, Mary Sue slash Jennifer decides to stay in Pleasantville for a little while because she's like, I got some more reading that I want to do and I've got some more to learn about myself. And I'm never going to get into college back in the real world. Exactly. So she's like, I'm going to stay here for a while. And I think that that's a very cool choice for her to make. Um, and then David goes back home. Um, but we get that final shot with... Uh, with Betty and George sitting on the bench and kind of being like, yeah, well, what are we going to do now? And it's like, oh, I don't know. And then it cuts and there's this implication of possible polyamory mm-hmm. with Bill Johnson. He's just like, I don't know either. Like, it's a great day. But the three of them are clearly going to figure something out. Well, we're almost in the 1960s. That's when people, the swingers Free got love, real popular. Man. Yeah. <laughs> swingers <laughs> got real popular in the 60s. Ugh. So the last point that I wanted to cite is from this Vice article where it says, when I rewatched Pleasantville this week, I was struck and disappointed by how much the themes of this film are still relevant. Director Gary Ross explores fear of change, the tendency people have, usually the privileged ones, to label things as bad, and the pattern of blaming the unwanted change on groups perceived as other. It's an all-too-familiar story, and I don't believe that including people of color in the cast would have diminished the kumbaya point that Ross is making. But as we've seen the town of Pleasantville, society can evolve when we start asking questions like what really makes a neighborhood pleasant or a country great? 
Hopefully in another 20 years, we won't need to unpack that answer. And I just, I find, I agree with everything that this writer says in this, in this piece. And um, I felt that that was a very nice note to end on in that Pleasantville is a, is a wonderful film and is unfortunately still very fucking relevant. Mm -hmm. So ultimately Pleasantville, rad movie, great coming of age movie, and one that is grounded by the women inside it. And I think that's very cool. And nothing but love for all of the women of Pleasantville. For real. Especially Marley Shelton. I want your oatmeal cookies. She's so cute. Oatmeal cookies from Marley Shelton in Pleasantville. Lemon bars from Deputy Judy in Scream 4. Give it to <laughs> me now. <sighs> <sighs> oh, but speaking of her, well, one more thing before we get into the official question. I know this, this movie could stand to have non-white people in it. But God damn it, if this movie does not have phenomenal casting across the board. They really did find, like, the textbook all-American looking cast. Like, yeah. And when I say all-American, I don't mean that as, like, an actual standard. I mean that as in, like, the mental the, hygiene. The caricature of what all-American looks like. Because, like, Marley Shelton especially is great casting, in my opinion, because I look at her and that's the same character that she plays in the 2000s for Sugar and Spice. Mm -hmm. Is just that character of wide eyes big blonde just feeling great about life teenage girl like that is who that character is and mm -hmm. just uh, magnificent <laughs> all right harmony the time has come oh yeah sock it to me Pleasantville. sock hop it to me <laughs> ew pleasantville is asking you to the prom is it a yes a no or a maybe and are you writing anything on the card back i'm writing the biggest yes i would like all of the cookies i would like to go to, you know, let's go to the hop. I will go wherever Pleasantville would like me to go as long as it is in color. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy our very deep philosophical conversations about Pleasantville today? I did. It was a little bit chaotic at times, but I'm happy that we had the conversation. Hey, personal growth is chaotic. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, friends, that takes us out on Pleasantville. We thank you again so much for listening. As always, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com backslash thisunsatprom. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at thisunsatprom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at bjcalangelo. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as their theme song. Y'all are the bee's knees, thebomb.com. We love you so very much. I'm loving seeing their photos of being on tour. I know. They're going to end their tour at May Halls, and I'm sad that we're not going to be there. <laughs> I know, because we live on the other side of the country now. I know. I'm, I, it's okay. I'll it live. is okay. I'll live. <laughs> I was there last week. I don't, I don't need to go back. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Harmony, what cool indie band do you want people to check out this week? Actually, I have like a proper indie band, but I also have just something else I'm going to throw in there for my own whatevers. Um, so because we got deeply philosophical and this is a movie about personal growth, I just want to shout out an album before I get to my actual pick called Watts Wave 2, How to Be a Better Person. It's by Akira the Dawn featuring voice samplings from a philosopher, Alan Watts. And it's like an hour and a half of like lo-fi music about th thoughts and not all of them I agree with, but it just, it makes me feel centered in a way that is less chaotic it makes me feel centered in a very chaotic world just if anybody else is curious for like intellectual lo-fi music that's you know this probably sounds like the most pretentious plug but it just felt like shouting it out but my actual proper indie band shout out is by a band called telethon and they released an album called swim out past the breakers it is an 
all-American style album by way of Everclear, which is basically Everclear trying to be the Beach Boys, but with punk rock. (laughs) I love it. And uh, no, it's phenomenal. It is some late 90s, almost college rock, alt rock, but for the radio in a way that I love and I don't think we get quite enough of. Because it's easy for like people to have nostalgia and try to emulate the pop punk bands, but like that college rock and like alt rock on the radio sound is just really underrepresented. Some of my personal favorite songs on the album include Positively Clark Street, Chester Drive, and shit parentheses Jansport. <laughs> I love that. That sounds great. It's super good. I've played you a few songs. Yeah, you have in the car. They do yeah. sound like Everclear. Oh, God. That's like, I mean, that's, <laughs> the song title's not making it subtle. And when we were listening to it, I'm like, man, this ending part of Positively Clark Street, where it's just a bunch of horns and stuff, that is so emphatically like harmony shit. <laughs> like, oh. Well, friends, that takes us out on Pleasantville. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Have a pleasant evening. Gross. Eh. What's going to happen now? I don't know. Do you know what's going to happen now? No, I don't. I guess I don't either. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.